This is the Herb Mendelssohn Story. Episode 3, The Practice. At the end of Episode 2, Herb was in a pretty good place. After years of trying and failing to get on staff at a decent hospital, he landed a spot at St. Mary's in Livonia. And having outgrown their first makeshift office, Herb and his partner, Dick Hall, were ready to build an office and grow their practice on a nice piece of land on Eight Mile Road. But as was so often the case for young Herb, life didn't proceed smoothly for long. By this point in the early 1960s, Herb and Phyllis had three young children. Their first child, a daughter, Diane, a young son, David, and an infant, Richard, named after Dick. David? slept in one bedroom, I slept in the other, and Richard was in a crib in David's bedroom because we are in a three-bedroom house. So they shared a room. And he was a little bit younger than two or just about two. One morning, when Diane was about five and a half and in kindergarten, she woke up to another seemingly normal day. My mom told me to go wake up the baby so that I assumed she could get breakfast or something. And so I went to wake him up. And I remember it was a very sunny day. And I went to wake him up and he didn't wake up. Being five years old, Diane was not alarmed. She went to her parents' room. And I said, Mom, the baby won't wake up. And then my mom went and then there was mayhem. Phyllis and Herb did everything they could to try and save Richard. (laughs) I remember that my dad ran around the house calling to my mom, Phyllis, where's a straw? Where's a straw? And my mother running. And I know now he tried to, he was trying to intubate him, you know, to breathe for him. Soon the paramedics arrived. They came in with a big box, which I think had oxygen, but I thought it was a box to put him in. And I remember my mom said, go to school, just go to school. I had kindergarten in the afternoon, go to school. So I went to school. I always tell the story that my teacher came and visited me. I thought she liked me best. And she got me two pins that were shaped like butterflies. And I thought that's because I was her favorite. I didn't realize she was making a shiva call. Herb and Phyllis were destroyed. In his grief, Herb was determined to find out what had happened. We don't know what happened. We don't know. Because it was almost like a crib death. And almost like a rise disease, you know, from aspirin. Because he was about 16 to 18 months old. So a little old for crib death. Herb insisted on doing an autopsy. So they did an autopsy, and he died of encephalitis, which was inflammation of the brain. So it wasn't a crib death. In some ways, I think that decreased guilt. You know, it wasn't like a crib death. It wasn't like something that was preventable. It wasn't like which side you laid the baby on. He had a serious brain infection and he died as a consequence. Phyllis became severely depressed and, as Diane remembers, disappeared into her bedroom. Only Phyllis's mother was able to reach her and, ultimately, to bring her back. My mom said to me that my grandmother said to her, you have to have another baby right away. And my mom said, you can't replace a baby. And she said, you cannot replace a child, but you wanted more children. You need to move on. And I think my grandmother saved my mom. Phyllis never uttered Richard's name again, referring to him only as the baby. Herb didn't talk about Richard much either, but he and Phyllis did listen to Phyllis's mother's advice. The penalty of losing Richard is we ended up getting pregnant right away. And thus we had Jeffrey, which 
has changed all of my life. <laughs> he was a sweet, happy kid. Into each life some rain must fall But too much is falling in mine Into each heart some tears must fall Losing Richard was a devastating blow, but life went on. As Herb's family grew, he and Dick set about growing their practice, the first step was to build for themselves a proper office. The year was 1968. The office itself was wonderful. It was a house. It felt like a house. Eight Mile, heading west, was a dirt road after Middle Belt. This house was a ravine. The Rouge River went through the back of it. The waiting room was the living room. You would see the river there. There would be ducks. You had hundred-year-old trees, which are magnificent. On the other side of the river was a pigeon coop housing raising pigeons. During the summer, David and his friends would fly model airplanes back behind the office. One day, we started up the engines. The pigeons went crazy. The owner went berserk. I messed up the racing pigeons. It was tremendous. In the winter, the river would raise and would freeze. People would ice skate on it. It was this beautiful synthesis of being sort of in the country, in the city. The office was really a wonderful place. We used to have fun, let me just tell you. In the green lawn from the pond and the stream, we would have office parties. And also friends from the hospital would come. And Dick was great at throwing parties. He'd be out there, one of these egg-throwing things where you would stand at one end by the water, and you would catch the egg, and there were whole eggs, and eventually you didn't catch it well, yeah. And so, things were good. Beyond the bucolic setting and fun parties, Herb and Dick were ideally matched partners. They shared a love of all things mechanical, and they shared a tenacious work ethic. They even had a friendly rivalry to see who could work harder. Herb and Dick's bond was so strong that it even survived a financial boondoggle when Dick was convinced by a guy with a name that sounds like a James Bond movie villain, Hans Hofmeister, to invest in an indoor tennis club. We bought into an eight-court indoor tennis club built on Grand River and Ten Mile Road in Novi. Hofmeister convinced Dick and Herb that indoor tennis clubs were the wave of the future, and so they bought in. But it turned out that Hofmeister knew nothing about running a tennis club. The cost of fuel and air conditioning was skyrocketed. And this was an indoor air conditioned tennis club. So the cost of cooling it was just impossible. And also, what else would hit simultaneously? The, uh, a, a sport called racquetball. Now, with racquetball, you could go out there in no time, sweat, work up a sweat and get out. Uh, take a shower and go to work. But tennis was a leisurely, casual, for the ladies, lovely. Herb and Dick couldn't even get time on their own courts. And when a court was available, Hofmeister made them pay for it. But as usual, Herb made the best of it. He even got to meet some interesting people. I hear a sound on my tennis court. That is Rudy Valley. And sure enough, he'd come to town and came to our tennis court to play. So it was amazing. 
Yeah. Before long, Hans Hofmeister ran the tennis club into the ground, and Herbin Dick sold it back to the bank at a loss. But despite the tennis debacle, things were generally going well. The practice was growing, and although Herb and Phyllis could never completely get over the death of Richard, their family continued to grow and thrive. They had their fifth living and final child, Steve, in 1970. They used to tell me I was building a dream, and so I followed the mob. When there was earth to plow or guns to bear, I was always there, right on the job. If you've listened to the first two episodes of the Herb Mendelssohn story, by now you know that in Herb's life, there's usually some sort of trouble lurking around the corner. And at this point, in the early 1970s, it took the form of a quickly growing practice and the challenges that came with it. You've probably heard the phrase, more money, more problems. In Herb's case, the problem wasn't money. Herb liked earning more money, but he wasn't primarily motivated by it. And neither was Dick. They split everything right down the middle. But accommodating the demands of a growing patient load meant bringing more partners into the practice. And this is where the trouble began. Well, the first one I brought in, I think, was Jovis, I think. I think Jovis. This would be Lenny Jovis, who was, by all accounts, a very intelligent guy. He's like number one or two in his class, trained at Michael Reese. He's a nice guy. Lenny's not quite the workhorse that my dad and Dick is, but he offers to them a a chance to unload some of the workload. Jovis was, in Herb's words, a man of instant indecision. The main issue with Jovis was that, unlike Herb and Dick, he wasn't passionate about medicine. He didn't go the extra mile. Not quite so much. He was anxious to get home to his wife. They were very close, and he was a good husband to her. So, you know, he would get out and not hustle like Dick and I. But Jovis was competent enough to help Herb and Dick manage their growing practice. So the three of them are going, and now things are moving at a fairly nice uh, pace. And even though Lenny isn't meeting his level of everybody else, things are going along fairly well. The real trouble began when Herb and Dick brought on yet another partner, Bala Prasad, an Indian physician who was Herb's colleague at St. Mary's. My dad liked the fact that he was Indian. St. Mary's had a lot of Indian physicians. My dad liked learning different languages and Uh, The Indian physicians, just like my dad being Jewish, were a little bit of a second citizen at the time. And he felt that Bala would be a great asset, that he would show a bit of diversity and things would go forward and whatnot. But Bala turned out to be a problem. For one thing, he was not a hard worker. Prasad was very lazy about doing any extra work. He would be in and out. That was it. His wife was a pediatrician. Not the prettiest gal, but a nice enough gal. To make matters worse, Herb had brought in Prasad in the first place because Dick began to experience crippling arthritis. He was like age 39 when this started, and by the time he was in his 40s, he was unable to operate. And that was a real problem because the practice was busy. Dick being unable to operate was bad enough, 
But on top of that, Prasad began to cause serious problems by crossing ethical lines and behaving with patience in a way that put the practice in legal and financial jeopardy. There's the an episode where he gets sexually involved with a patient and gets sued, and the malpractice carrier says, we don't cover, that's not part of your malpractice cover. Bala became a problem. He became a problem in workload. He became a problem in quality of care. He became a problem socially. And my dad, having a soft heart, knew it was a problem. He couldn't bring himself to just fire him. Now, if you're wondering why Herb didn't just immediately get rid of Prasad, well, that was partly because while Herb was an excellent doctor and an extremely hard worker, When it came to business, he just didn't quite have the hardness of heart it sometimes takes to deal with problem employees. Part of Herb's problem when it came to that stuff was that he had such a big heart, and he didn't want to hurt anyone, even a guy like Prasad, who obviously had to go. Eventually, though, mostly at Dick's insistence, they finally did rid themselves of Prasad. But while that solved one problem, other problems quickly arose— For one, Dick's health continued to decline. Dick's health gets even worse. Not only does he have rheumatoid arthritis and he's getting crippled and he's having trouble operating and and walking, but now he starts having heart issues and he has a bypass. I remember distinctly he went from our office on 8 Mile Road and he went slightly uphill to uh, get a sandwich somewhere. And he was so short of breath it reminds me of me now. And ultimately had a five-vessel bypass at Beaumont and recovered from it. And in the meantime, his arthritis was flaring up and he just uh, couldn't do things. With Dick unable to work for the foreseeable future and with Prasad out the door, Herb went looking for another partner to join the practice. Enter Bob Solomon. My dad had talked to Joey Salama. Joey Salama and Bob Solomon were residents at Mount Carmel, or that was called the Quadrangle, where ultimately Jeffrey and Stevie and myself did our training. They would have monthly journal clubs and academic meetings, and we would go to these. Everybody kind of knew who the players were in town. My dad talked to Joey Salama, and Joey was a handsome, good-looking guy, and Joey was sort of good to come with uh, with my dad, and then he, at the last minute, changed his mind and went with uh, Sid Charnas, who was established at Providence. So my dad takes on Bob Solomon. Solomon turned out to be less than an ideal partner. Suffice it to say, Bob Solomon does not have the ethic and work and spirit that Dick Hall had. He's pretty much self-oriented. And although they have arrangements and agreements, he violates them on a regular basis. And he's a problem. Solomon was quick to take advantage of ways to make extra money on the side. Bob also was very free with working elsewhere at other places. And he'd get sued for a case that he did elsewhere and wanted us to help pay for the suit. So at this point, Herb was in a jam. Jovis wasn't exactly a go-getter, and Solomon was unreliable and running off to work elsewhere. And on top of all that, Dick, who was already beset with horrible arthritis and serious heart problems, was beginning to go blind. The last thing Herb needed was another headache. But that's exactly what he got, 
in the form of Eric Borofsky. Now, Eric Borofsky was down at Wayne, and Eric Borofsky sort of hustles my dad at many different places, many different times. He says, I'm a Jewish boy, I'm married, I'm finishing residency. My dad wasn't looking for a partner, but he ends up getting pushed into it. Around this time, Herb was trying to get on staff at Sinai Hospital, a Jewish hospital in Detroit that had never given him the time of day. But Herb saw an opportunity with Borofsky. So Herb spoke with Richard Camel, who was head of Sinai at the time. My dad approaches Camel and says, listen, I've got this guy Borofsky, you know who he is. I'm only going to take him if he can get on staff at Sinai so we can establish ourselves here. I witnessed myself when Dick Campbell said, no problem, he's on. So Herb brought Borofsky into the practice, and then Camel promptly reneged on his promise. I never witnessed an adult lie straight out like that. That was the first time I really noticed that. So now my dad has Borofsky on there. He's trying to figure out how to make the practice go, and practice is muddling through. And as it turned out, Borofsky gave Solomon a run for his money in terms of dishonesty and unethical behavior. For example, during the middle of a busy day, with a waiting room full of patients, he would disappear. Where'd he go? He loved movies. And he would sneak away early in the afternoon to go watch, to the theater, to go watch a movie. And he just loved movies. It's funny. He was just a complete mixture. He was a crappy surgeon and a good surgeon, both at the same time. He could do well, and he could make a mess of things. Everybody, as they get to be partners, everybody's supposed to do their assigned work. The money shared equally, etc. Lebrowski was straightforward, dishonest. He was moonlighting. You weren't supposed to be moonlighting, but he was doing moonlighting. He'd leave the office and say, oh, I have an emergency, you didn't have emergency at a second job. These patients would be sitting there. I would frequently come and see those patients that he left. He would do a lot of things that were terrible. Herb was frustrated, but despite his partner's dishonest and disrespectful behavior, and despite the fact that Solomon and Borofsky especially took advantage of Herb by not pulling their weight, the practice was thriving. Business was good. And by this time, David, who'd literally grown up at the office, was now himself an orthopedic surgeon, and much to Herb's delight, decided to join the practice. But David coming on was not a delight to Herb's partners. True to form, they made it a problem. When I come to join the practice, the whole firestorm starts. It, it, it's really bad. Partners there really don't want me there. They are unhappy with the pay that my dad decides to give me. They feel they're getting screwed. And things are never settled after that point. Nevertheless, David joined, and the practice continued to thrive and grow. But internally, things were starting to really unravel, and Herb knew it. My dad recognizes that Solomon is a problem, and to an extent, Borofsky is a problem. And there are multiple meetings, business meetings, where he comes close to getting rid of Borofsky. He gets close to get rid of Solomon. Dick and my dad go back. Lenny and my dad go back. They have these private meetings. we got to get rid of them. We can't. My dad says, I just can't do it. My dad never quite gets the heart to do it. So unfortunately, when you have a cancer and you don't remove the cancer, sometimes the cancer goes to remove you. This acrimonious situation carried on for several years, 
until things came to a head when Jovis, Solomon, and Borowski conspired to sign a lease for a building adjacent to St. Mary's and to break away and start their own practice. So they were planning an escape, not to include us. David was in practice with me already then. I, I don't know if Jeffrey had come along yet or not, but it was quietly done, and somehow, by whatever way I was able to get in it, because I sensed if we're squeezed out there, it's location right on the grounds of the hospital. To me, meant like, wow, you're right there. People are not going to buy. Send me to little minky dinky place uh, out of eight mile. Well, they'll send to the people who are in the building. That was right. And I said to my dad, I said, I'll never forget this. I said, let them go. These these are bad people. Let them go there and be at the hospital. We'll stay here at eight mile. There's plenty of space for us. We'll make our own practice. I said, we can, we'll, we can do this. And I told him that, and that was how we voted. And I went home. And later that night, my dad called me, and he said, well, I, I went over there. I talked with him. We can't do it. I told him we'll go with him. And I said, well, I won't challenge you on it, but it's, I don't think that was a great idea. Yeah, we ended up not splitting. Somehow I wheedled my own way. I don't know how or what, but I, I, I was in with them for the tortuous years of them always wanting to be away from the Mendelssohn's. But finally, after too many years of having to deal with his ungrateful and unscrupulous partners, by the mid-1980s, they split up. It's worth taking a moment now to reflect on Herb's career so far. As you'll recall from episode one, Herb's childhood was like something out of Dickens. He grew up in grinding poverty and suffered abuse at home. And even as he developed into a determined and upstanding young man, he hardly seemed destined for a bright and prosperous future, let alone becoming a respected orthopedic surgeon. And yet, that's exactly what happened. Throughout medical school, throughout the struggle to find a spot at a respectable hospital, throughout the loss of his one true partner, Dick Hall, to illness, and throughout the underhanded machinations of the Jovis Solomon Borowski Troika, Herb not only persevered, but never became embittered or cynical. His great love for what he did not only helped countless patients regain mobility and live without pain, but he also inspired his children to follow in his path. Diane, the oldest, went into internal medicine and developed her own practice. David, Jeffrey, and Steve not only became orthopedic surgeons, but chose to join the practice and work alongside their father. And along the way, Herb became a great physician, not just great in a technical sense. It was more than that. Herb's devotion to his chosen profession was pure in a way that's hard to describe in the abstract. There are many examples of Herb's unique way with patients, of his ability to not just fix them, but to get to know them and to put them at ease and make them laugh. But one example in particular really gets to the heart of what medicine meant to Herb and what Herb brought to medicine.
It was 1975, just a few years after the race riots that had erupted in cities across the country and that had left Detroit in a scarred and damaged state from which it's never fully recovered. That summer, a young African American man named Robert Gardner, a Vietnam vet who, after returning from the war, had worked as a medical technician, was out for a bike ride with his wife and young son near Wayne State University in downtown Detroit. Gardner was due to start medical school at Wayne in a few months. And while we were riding, I had my son on my cross on the crossbars of my bicycle, and we were riding. And my wife was she was having a good time, and as we crested a hill and started down the hill. Uh, the bike started accelerating, and as it accelerated, my son slid forward in the bicycle, and I was easing on the brakes, and that's the last thing I remembered. Robert's son's shoe had gotten caught in the spokes of the bicycle's front wheel, causing them to fly over the handlebars and into the street. When he came to, Robert found himself lying on the pavement with excruciating pain in his shoulder. Immediately, I started looking around for my son, and he was laying in the street about oh, about five or six feet from me. And I got up, and as I got up, I realized my shoulder went limp, and I had broken my shoulder and my uh, my elbow. And my wife lost control of her bicycle and hit the sidewalk, and she had a large gash in her forehead. Robert's son was miraculously unscathed, but his wife was bleeding badly, and he was in terrible pain. Robert used his torn shirt to tend to his wife's wound. And meanwhile, cars were whizzing by, none stopping to help an African American family in obvious need. Finally, after about twenty minutes, an ambulance arrived and delivered Robert and his family to Harper Hospital. Robert's wife, who had insurance through her job, was treated immediately. But Robert didn't have insurance. I sat in the lobby there with my son, and finally I asked, "Are you going to do something for Pete?" And he said, "No, you didn't have any insurance, so we can't do anything for you." I said. This is an emergency room. You're just supposed to do something. They said, no, we can't do anything. You don't have insurance. And so when one lady gave me, I think she gave me some Tylenol or something like that to ease the pain, and she said, that's all I could do for you. After a sleepless night spent in horrible pain, the next morning, Robert went to Sinai Hospital, where he demanded to see a doctor. I raised my, my voice. says, I am not leaving this place until somebody helps me. And the nurse, she became a little unsettled by, by the change in my attitude. And she said, come, young man, let me put you in a back room, a seat here, a back room here. And so we'll, we'll figure out something. She was very nervous. I thought she was going to call security because I, I was not going to leave there until somebody did something for me. And so I stayed in the room a long time. And finally, the, the doorknob turned, turned in this little room. And I thought, security police. And uh, in walked in my book, I described him as a young guy with a thick mustache and a really nice smile. This, of course, was Herb. He took a look at Robert's shoulder and listened to his story. He thought for a moment. He says, "I tell you what, Robert, uh, if you're willing to do something, I can help you. But you gotta, you gotta be tough enough and you gotta be brave enough to do it." By this point, Robert was willing to do anything to get rid of the pain. So he followed Herb and the nurse down to the basement of the hospital. There's lots of boilers and all kinds of things down there, steam and. It looked like something from a, a horror movie. I was asking, where are we going? So we made our way through the pipes and the tunnels and so forth, which was a little room that apparently was some kind of procedure room in the basement. As the nurse prepared the room, Herb turned to Robert and put his hand on Robert's uninjured shoulder. He says, "Look at me now." He says, "It's going to hurt." And I said, "I don't care. Just do it." And he got some xylocaine or something and 
started shooting my shoulder. That, that kind of hurt too. But then what followed was even worse. Kept on uh, poking my shoulder to see if it was dead. And I said, yeah, this, this skin's dead. He said, okay, all right. And the nurse got real close to me and, and, and uh, <laughs> as if she knew something I didn't know. And then Dr. Uh, Dr. Uh, Middleson took out a drill to start drilling through the muscle into the tendons into the, to the shoulders. Barely conscious, Robert clutched the nurse for support. I started holding onto the nurse and I grabbed her waist and I just buried my face into her bosom. And she was really nice too. She just, she understood how much pain I was in. She just grabbed me and held me. And Dr. Mendelson was, was the, uh, the little carpenter's, looked like a carpenter's uh, drill, drilling the holes in my arm. And I was wondering when he was going to quit because I was, I was losing consciousness almost. And the blood was going down my arm and he kept on putting the spikes in. He said, just a little bit longer, a little bit longer, Robert, hold on. And uh, finally, he got the last one in, and uh, he draped it and dressed it. Without the numbing benefit of anesthesia, Herb had placed several rods into Robert's shoulder to stabilize it. And suddenly, almost magically, the pain was greatly reduced. I I didn't know what to say. It was just such a difference between night and day. The nurse, as I mentioned, I apologized to her for squeezing her hand blue and embracing her as if I knew her. But she was she was understanding. We when I left, he asked me. He says, "Do if I had a doctor, a private doctor?" And I said, "No, I, I didn't have a doctor." He said, "I tell you what, I want you to come to my office next week, and I want to see how things are." And so I said, "Okay, I'll, I'll be there." So I went to his office there, and and he saw me. He said everything looked good. It was going well. He asked me to come back the following week. Robert came back to see Herb several more times until his shoulder was healed and Herb was able to remove the rods. Robert asked how much he owed. And he says, no, Robert, you don't, you don't need to pay me anything. I was shocked. He said, I'm a medical student. You're trying to get started, and I understand that. I've been there myself. And I said, but I need to pay you something. He said, no, Robert, uh, you don't have to pay me anything. All I want you to do is when you become a good doctor, you become a good doctor. Be the best doctor you can be and pass on the kindness to someone else. Robert was stunned. Not only had Herb fixed him without insurance, but remember that this was Detroit in the mid-70s, a time when African Americans were still second-class citizens in many ways, and much less likely to catch a break or receive kindness from white people in power. None of that mattered to Herb. He says, I'll see you around if you need something. I'm here. Just call me. Let me know how you're doing. And I said, yes, sir. And then I left. But I never forgot that kindness, and, and I tried to be the best doctor I could be. Robert went on to become a doctor, and throughout his career, he paid forward Herb's act of kindness many times over. After retiring from the Air Force Medical Service as a chief medical officer, he dedicated himself to helping those in need. I've gone to Guam and worked among the Chamorro Indians for almost a year. I've worked in with the Native Americans. Uh, on reservations, I've done veteran health fairs. I've tried to to skirt the the areas of traditional medicine. People who are able to get to medical care and, and kind of focus on the, on the fringes of, of um, humanity, those who really don't have good access to medicine. And I've enjoyed it. Years later, on a return trip to Detroit, Robert sought out Herb and showed up at the office near St. Mary's. I was very delighted to see him. And as soon as I, I, I mentioned who I was, he knew right away. He remembered, perhaps not my face, but he remembered this young, this young guy in the basement of that hospital. 
who allowed him to do what he does best, making people feel better. I just hugged him and I, and I said, well, I, I just wanted to come back and thank you. You know, oftentimes people fail to show appreciation in some way of saying thank you. Thank yous are so important within, in the lives of people. To be able to say that that, that person appreciate what you did, that's all the reward you want, to know that, that what you've done has made a difference. I, I would simply say that sometimes God put people into people's lives as a divine appointment. And for that moment, uh, Dr. Mendelssohn was there. And I think he is one of God's champions, and I'm pretty sure that there's a starry crown waiting for him somewhere. I never cared much for moonlit skies. The Herb Mendelssohn story is a production of Tribal Knowledge Podcasting. The executive producer is Jeremy Shear. The associate producer is Hannah Levine. I never went 